From the tiniest amoeba to the biggest whale, living things eat and purge. The dance is the same with humans and their food. We have production, consumption, and waste, and waste, and more waste. And that very last stop is where emissions get off the train. And ideally, they stay there. Food waste's decomposition in landfills leads to the release of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and a greenhouse gas 25 times more potent, methane. These are eventually released into the air and help to take Canadian summer days hotter than any time in recorded history. The 2021 Food Waste Index reports that 931 million tons of food ends up in the trash every year. Household waste accounts for more than 50% of this, with food and retail scores coming in a close second. General Manager at Truly Green Farms, Greg Deveries, shares some groundbreaking carbon-neutral farming practices. Lenore Newman gets excited about the future of food. And Evan Fraser, director of the Aero Food Institute, has some suggestions for policymakers. Welcome to our seventh episode of The Edge of Energy a podcast about pushing Canada's energy transition forward. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. According to the World Resource Institute, if food waste was a country, it would be the world's third largest carbon emitter after the U.S. and China. But how did we get there? Well, I think how we got here really is food has become very, very cheap in a lot of ways. You know, so-called cost-effective and doesn't have enough value into it. <clears throat> I think people don't uh, respect it as much, and I think over time, what has happened is that um, from generation to generation, you know, in my world, I grew up in a, on a family farm, and uh, we grew a lot of our own food, and uh, we respected that, right? Because it came from our own hard work and came from our dedication that we put into growing that food that came to our table. And I think as time progresses, food has become not only cost effective, but it doesn't have that same attachment that it once did if you actually produced it on your own. Even after having firsthand knowledge of fruit farming from his grandfather, Evan Fraser decided to pass on the family business. Lucky for us, when you're not writing about it, Evan, you can be an expert on a show like ours. So welcome and thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Lenore Newman studies the future of food, but her agricultural research focuses on issues relating to intensive farming, farmland preservation, and what we're really looking forward to hearing about, crop innovation. Thanks for joining us today. Very glad to be here. Can you take us through the food production and supply chain and describe how we might be able to close the loop in areas that are contributing to emissions? Really, where it starts is there's an entire industry that provides seeds and inputs like fertilizer and pesticide and such things. And uh, then we have the producers who are, you know, growing crops or raising animals. And then it's sold into a processing network that's quite elaborate and spans the entire globe. And that includes processing and then also logistics, uh, the moving it around and getting it to your actual store before it comes to you. And another interesting little side part of that is only half of the food in the system in normal times, uh, non-pandemic times that is, um, 
goes to the consumer directly. About half of all the food in the system goes to restaurants and other industrial users like hospitals and universities and places where people eat in groups. So it's split about evenly. And so, yeah, there's this giant network that blankets the entire planet to ensure that all times of year, everywhere, food is on the move. An agricultural philosopher named Wendell Berry, he described that nature had an elegant solution, which was that um, there was a cycle of life where the, the leaves dropped from the tree and then the leaves got incorporated into the ground and then the tree then used the decomposing leaves as nutrients for the next generation and so on. We've taken that elegant solution and divided it into two wicked problems, uh, problems of, of resource depletion and enormous amounts of pollution and waste. And we're paying the price in that we're mining our soil at one end in many parts of the world. And we've got massive waste problems at the other end of the pipeline. So what we need to do is we need to recircularize what we've turned into a linear economy. And here we've actually got some really positive, I think, news. I mean, I, I live in Guelph, Ontario. The city of Guelph recently established a circular food economy initiative funded by the federal government. And, and the design or the goals of that project called Our Food Future are to find waste products around the stream and to work them back into the, uh, the the value economy. So we've got, for instance, a um, an insect farm that takes uh, wasted food from restaurants and grocery stores, uh, raises black soldier flies on that food that would otherwise be thrown out, that organic matter, um, that those black soldier flies are fed to a local fish farm, a local aquaculture operation. Uh, the fish poop is then used to fertilize uh, grain and potato fields. Uh, all that stuff, the fish, the grain, the potato fields goes into fish and chip dinners at local restaurants. And then the wasted food from the restaurant gets reincorporated back into the insect farm. So at a regional scale, we can start seeing a lot of examples of these circular food economies coming along. And, um, and I actually think the technologies of these vertical farms actually have the potential to be really important players in creating circular food economies. If we think of the city as an organism or as an ecosystem even, and sometimes we talk, call this industrial ecology, uh, we can start imagining how we can create those elegant cycles of nature, even within this extremely linear, you know, urban form that we've built that, that, you know, traditionally pulls resources out of, out of the countryside and out of the rural areas and dumps them in the city at, at, at unsustainable rates. As part of my work for the government, I was touring fruit producers in the Okanagan. And there was a cherry producer who, beautiful product, and he had it really automated. So you just basically dump cherries into this building and they sorted themselves. It was really awesome. Top 10% went to China for the specialty market. The next 40% went to the North American market. He was landfilling the bottom 50% because there was nothing to do with them profitably. And we were just horrified. And he's like, yeah, I wish I could. Wish I had somewhere to send these cherries. And what he needed as a farmer, what he needed was to get them to someone who actually needed them and could make value out of them. And that's what this kind of tracking can do in terms of food waste is that there'd be a little alarm going off somewhere in a computer programming saying, hey, we got just a ton of slightly odd cherries um, that we could make into cherry powder say, for the food industry, or cherry leather, or dried cherries, or whatever, or cherry juice. And it would just 
kind of automatically route those to where they needed to go. And some some big truck would pull up next to his facility. He'd put the cherries in them and he'd forget about them and he'd get a check. That is the ideal outcome. Well, in a lot of ways, what we're trying to do in, in the supply chain is as part of our business being involved in the greenhouse vegetable world, we're also into the field cropping side of things and the livestock side of things. In our case, we plant corn every May. And so we take a, a corn roll of corn, we plant it in the ground, and we produce a cob of corn on that plant. Our greenhouse works on a 12-month cycle, which, of course, in our Canadian winters means that we need to be having a heat source that allows us to maintain a certain climate to grow our crop. And so in our case, which is unique in a lot of different ways, but can be used as an example of how we can become much more energy efficient, we developed a strategic relationship. In Chatham-Kent, we have an ethanol plant called Greenfield Ethanol across the road. And with that, we take those kernels of corn, uh, we harvest them, we store them, and then we deliver them year-round to the ethanol plant, which then takes that kernel of corn, extracts the energy out of that to make a new renewable source. Instead of using oil, now we're using a renewable resource in the way of corn. That kernel of corn is processed in a couple of things. Uh, one of them is a feed byproduct that we use in our cattle operation. So we take another waste source and feed it to our cattle operation. Uh, but also we take the waste heat and the CO2 and we pump it across the road to our greenhouse, which is then used to be able to uh, grow tomatoes. With that complete cycle that becomes a revenue stream on our cropping operation, but also becomes a renewable resource, the waste heat and CO2 become, which is waste for one operation, becomes also, you know, a, a feed source for cattle and also an energy source and CO2, which helps stimulate plant growth for our vegetable greenhouse operation. So, and the cycle carries on and on. From the livestock, what we do is we take the waste from the cattle operation in the form of manure, and we use that as a nutrient source, which goes onto the fields that we grow corn in. And the following year, we do that process all over again. It's just, it's a beautiful story and it kind of shows how in a cycle of things, you can carry on what's waste for one aspect of agriculture becomes something of a benefit for the other. What is regenerative agriculture and how can it reduce greenhouse gas emissions? What can green energy extraction do for the farming industry? Well, I think in the farming industry that's, you know, when we look at, uh, you know, what we know is that plants are an awesome user of, um, of carbon. And with that land base that we grow those crops on, whether it's trees or grasslands or field crops, we're actually taking that carbon, sequestering it into the soil. And so that is something that, um, that's been going on for, for decades, if not centuries. And how we, uh, how we have feed, fed the population is that we're basically doing that. Um, and when we look at what we're doing in the example that I gave about our diversified farming operation, is that that corn plant is doing exactly that. We use very sustainable methodologies in that we use very little tillage. We use a lot of cover crops, which is a way of covering the soil during the times of the year when we're not producing a crop. And that allows the best chance of success in growing the most uh, productive crop that you can that you possibly can have. Once 
you might think, well, there it goes and becomes emitted into the atmosphere. But in the case with greenfield ethanol, not only are they supplying that CO2 to us as a greenhouse operation, they're also selling that carbon dioxide to other industries as well, too, that use it on an ongoing basis as well. So just, just another example of how when you think about uh, in the whole world of carbon credits, I think there, there are very many opportunities opportunities for us to pursue as an industry, uh, but I think we also have to, you know, look at how we can be acknowledged for the work that we've already done to get us to this point. If anything, the pandemic pushed us to be more self-sufficient. What has it shown us about food import versus growing locally? How can this contribute to our energy transition? If anything, what COVID showed us, and we saw it in droves in the um, in the whole, especially on the vegetable side of things, where um, really growing vegetables becomes a global transaction in one way too, in that um, you know we grow tomatoes in uh, and we grow sweet bell peppers in our greenhouse operation, uh, but we're competing directly against Mexico, we're competing against Spain, we're competing against uh, European countries that actually fly this type of product into our country and uh, and it becomes our number one competition. When at the end of the day, when COVID occurred, a lot of those supply chains got interrupted. And by default, what you saw was a couple of things. First of all, a lot of folks that normally would spend a certain percentage of their food dollar out and eating in restaurants and away from home all of a sudden found themselves not having the opportunity to do that. So every every night they'd have to perhaps prepare their own food. And so with that, a lot more of what we were producing um, through the uh, distribution channels that got to the retail side of sort all of a sudden had a greater demand. And because the supply couldn't come from out of country, all of a sudden people started to recognize the importance of local food. Um, now, hopefully that importance of our local food system carries on in and uh, understanding that the impact of all that, because as I just described, you can only imagine how many air miles are on that pepper if it's coming from Spain, uh, which is uh, quite a quite a long ways from here. And the only way to get here cost effectively is is by air freight. Sometimes it's by ship, but even then there's there's a cost to that as well too. So I think as time progresses, the consumers, we've always appreciated the loyalty that has been expressed by our consumers about the whole buy local, whether it's Ontario or Canadian. But I think we also have to recognize that if we want to see that become more than what it is now, we got to continue to push that element forward and understand that um, how important it is. And um, I think anybody that's within the province of Ontario for, for where we operate out of, you don't have to go too far without finding a source, especially this time of year, of fresh vegetables. And I think I encourage everybody to go out there and find their local uh, provider of any kind of vegetable you can think of and, and support them. Outside of our agricultural heroes and their decades of gathering, what I also found interesting was that there's a global seed vault on Spitsbergen in Norway that stores approximately 930,000 varieties of the world's food crops. As we transition to a lower carbon future, can we sustain these regenerative agricultural practices and integrate more of these richly earthed foods into both a rural and urban setting? Well, this is really interesting. In our effort to produce really, really productive crops and livestock over the 20th century, we created very, very specialized strains of corn or wheat or rice or, or whatnot. And there's the very little genetic diversity, very, very little genetic diversity in the crops that are currently being planted in most of our 
say, our grains and our oilseed fields uh, that make up most of, say, rural Ontario's landscape. In the future, we are aware that we're going to need to have the genetic tools, the DNA, the traits, the uh, the genes that allow us to have things like pest resistance or drought tolerance or, or things like that. And it's quite likely that that those traits exist in wild species, uh, existed prior to the domestication of these species. So having a repository of seeds, of genetic material, gives us a, the genetic library, in a sense, that we could draw upon if we're looking for other characteristics that we want to breed back into our lines. The neat thing about heirloom seeds when it comes to their makeup is their genetic package that um, really has become the parents of many of the varieties that we see today. So I think it's important in order to maintain that genetic database and have that actually available. And can it happen in urban areas? I think anytime there's an opportunity that we can look at the new makeup of what urban means, um, it doesn't just have to be concrete and in tall buildings you know it can be in you know a little bit more strategic in nature and developing that green space and developing that opportunity to help have community gardens in place and be able to you know people to to get their hands in the dirt and to actually grow something it's it once you have had the opportunity to plant one seed and get a windfall of a reward because of a healthy crop that's produced this whole cycle. It's just one of the most rewarding experiences and not not only producing the crop to be able to put it on your own table and feed it to your friends and family, I think is is crucially important. And I think, you know, we are so fortunate in North America that I, we just take it all for granted of what, you know, those folks around the world that are just uh, challenged to find enough nourishment in a day to keep their family going. If we keep that in mind, I think how we purchase our food, how we consume our food, how we make uh, utilization of what the resources we have, it puts those things in perspective. Certainly does for me as a, as a producer of food. From controlling the movement and grazing of animals directly from your smartphone, to sensors and drones that collect data from soil and vertical farming, are there any other innovations that will replace, assist, or displace our current farming practices? Agriculture has always been a very technologically driven, uh, technologically driven industry in all facets. So whether you're in in the cropping side of things, livestock or vegetables, there's just technology everywhere that actually measures many, many aspects of what we do and also provides uh, cost-efficient ways of doing it um, from, from guidance systems that help uh, direct and steer our tractors to uh, you know the increasing um, development of robotics. And I think we've just seen the very beginning of what robotics can do to our industry. Um, you know, in, in our industry, um, it is very labor-intensive. It is very difficult to find local labor that's willing to to do the work in a greenhouse operation and by default we do bring a bunch of folks in from different parts of the world to do that task and they're very important and they're just like family as they they carry on and do those tasks on a day-by-day basis and uh, right now what we have seen is a lot of uh, development in the robotic side of things and and taking away some of the the hand labor by doing something that's um, that's more um, driven by uh, doing the same task through robotics, but we also have um, developed a lot of technology that can measure things. And so now in there's a lot of um, a lot of development in the area of, for example, measuring how plants grow and how they are on their development charge. And um, they can even predict if there's disease up and coming. And so instead of waiting to see the evidence of the disease, we can actually take 
robotic crop scouts and go along and with infrared technology be able to analyze and see that there is um, spores that are present and that if you take uh, an opportunity to nip that in the bud now, you can prevent a disaster from happening in your crop later down the road. So I think the technology piece is going to keep on driving it and it's going to continue to have a more reliable food stream and also is in the way of being able to protect the integrity of our food safety as well too. I think this goes back to what we talked about, the whole food distribution piece and the buy local component of buying Canadian. I think at the end of the day, we have to understand that the standards that we have here in Canada when it comes to food safety are extremely high much higher than perhaps some different jurisdictions around the world. So the one thing is whenever you find something that's been, you know, produced within Canada, I think we can recognize and you can be rest assured that it's healthy for your family. Lenore, your lane is the future of food bioengineering, cultured meat, dietary trends, indoor agriculture. What do you see on the horizon? Yeah, so there's sort of a suite of technologies totally changing the way we do agriculture. And the first one I'd met, I would mention is genomics and uh, genetic engineering in general. And uh, the things we can do with CRISPR are astounding. We can breed and then do genetic testing and then say, okay, these three really look good. Let's breed those. I mean, it's just a golden age for making exactly the plant and animal we need. Technology, too, is precision agriculture. This idea of really automating a lot of the farming with satellites, with GPS, with drones. Um, You can greatly cut your input because instead of just drenching your entire field in pesticide, you have a drone tell you where to put the pesticide. Hey, the drone can even go and put the pesticide there. It's incredible. Things like tractors that just tractor themselves. You don't need to do it anymore because the satellite's doing it for you. Now, you do need infrastructure for this we don't quite have in Canada. And it's so interesting that TELUS has moved into agriculture so aggressively, is you need a network. That blanket over the earth is actually necessary to run this tech. And we really see that at its best in grain and pulse farming now. They've already adapted these technologies. And so in the pandemic, those those systems weren't even disrupted because it's literally like one guy farming a small country's worth of lentils. Uh, Then there is the whole, uh, there is the cellular, uh, the idea that we can now pretty well ferment any product we want. And then there is also this uh, supply management and logistics that this one isn't quite as sexy to the average person and they haven't heard as much about it, but that whole tracking system where you actually can take an apple grown in, say, Peru, and you actually know where it came from. You know what tree it came from the whole way along. That mass data is also really revolutionizing. It it helps with food waste, and that's the kind of system we're working towards. We're not there yet, but I think we will get there. And I also would say technologies that are localizing things like the advanced greenhouse, like the indoor, the vertical, um, like in a way, um, the cellular, which is taking things from an animal system into an indoor environment, that year round local is going to be really big. What should we look at in terms of policy in Canada and globally that can push this sector forward to lower emissions? Superb question. And I love 
being able to get prescriptive, normative, make my, make my, wave my magic wand and make my policy recommendations. For the environment, uh, governments need to pay farmers for providing ecosystem services, reward farmers that absorb carbon and protect wildlife habitat, um, pay farmers say that uh, take marginal land out of production and put a wildflower meadow in that's good for pollinators or plant some trees that are good for biodiversity. Um, in terms of the economy, we've already talked about things like um, like exciting innovations in uh, in cellular agriculture, alternative proteins. We've talked about exciting innovations in vertical farming or geothermal uh, heated greenhouses. I think to help the economy, the government needs to uh, essentially allow for the creation or fund the creation of what I'd like to call ag innovation zones in and around Canadian cities. Uh, I think there is a huge economic opportunity to um, to be a global leader in the application of digital agricultural technologies, these technologies are very different than than past agricultural technologies. In that, most of the technologies we're talking about sit naturally within or adjacent to urban areas. These aren't necessarily rural technologies, um, and so we need to expand our definition of what agri food means to include. Uh, putting vertical farms in downtown cities. And so I think there is a uh, there is a, a big ag technology innovation play that the federal and the provincial governments in Canada could embark on that would create great jobs for Canadians that would put us as a global leader um, in this space. And then in terms of society, the food system is facing a major period of disruption brought on by novel technologies. Uh, I don't think we can stop that disruption, but I think we can control its impact on Canadians. And I think we can, uh, and I think we have a, a, a responsibility to help um, those sectors, uh, and particular perhaps parts of the livestock sector, figure out how to address and adapt to the coming changes. In the past, I've advised the BC government on ag agricultural policy and I sat as a member of the Premier's Food Security Task Force and our key recommendation is the same one I make to everyone which is agritech, agritech, agritech. We have to compete globally and uh, also labor. There is just no labor. We're a powerhouse globally producing agriculturally and selling the material. So say, for example, Oatly went public in the States. And of course, they're a Swedish company. They make oat milk. Suddenly, they're a $10 billion public company. A lot of the oats and canola that goes into the product come from Canada. We can be making precursors. So I'm always arguing we need to work more on processing on making technology we can export. When we look at uh, which countries sell the most agricultural stuff, um, the Netherlands are number two. The government and academia and business have partnered there in what they call the Golden Triangle to basically sell agricultural technology to the world. We've seen a couple of new jurisdictions really burst onto the scene. Singapore, has realized, wow, this is a really good model. Let's do this. Same with Israel, same with, to a degree, Japan, China, Taiwan, and Silicon Valley as well, has realized, wow, like in any gold rush, you probably don't want to be the person out panning for gold. You want to be selling pans and selling shovels. Uh, the other thing I hear a lot of is, especially outside of the country, is people will say, well, yeah, you incubate great companies. 
Like you got lots of great startups. And then they have to move to anywhere else other than Canada. We have a really hard time scaling. So I think that's one place government should be looking at and asking, what do we need to do? What policies do we need to have? What regulations do we need to change so that we can scale companies and actually keep them? You got to have somebody that's got the, the best problem in the same room with somebody that's got the best solution. And a lot of cases, those two people don't know that each other exists, right? It's it's and and because of you know uniqueness and networking and you know crossing paths, that's where this all came to fruition. And that um, this story would never have been if somebody didn't say, "Wonder why we can't build a greenhouse across the road from the ethanol plant?" And a light bulb goes off, and it's almost as simple as that. In agriculture, what we need to do is we need to um, sometimes look a little broader and think a little little further. The reality is the system isn't refined to the point where it works perfectly. I have all the confidence that it will. We're fortunate to receive some interest-free loans along the way from government programs that have helped backstop this. We do need, in some cases, where you know whether it's financial institutions and 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 government policy or programs to help provide you know that backstop for for opportunities like you know, our greenhouse operation was named truly green just because of that we are truly green and we are trying to to push that envelope and when someone can see that there will be a truly green tomato that can that can actually come to the marketplace and and people can see the value not just because it's a good tasting tomato but the whole process of how it was produced has led it to be something different something special and I think as time progresses, those are the opportunity that not only does government need to support, but the consumer has to support as well, too. We just need, as a society, to be able to encourage that kind of thinking and to uh, to reward you know the producer that takes that plunge. And I know many producers that are doing very innovative things, producing energy, whether it's taking you know all sorts of waste, rather from livestock farms or other aspects, and making energy and putting it on the grid, um, you know, from from using all different types of renewable sources of energy. It's not easy, and it's not for the faint of heart. And uh, along the way, though, that kind of mindset has to be encouraged if we're going to continue to see this go in the right direction. Thank you for joining us today. I really enjoyed this episode. And as a consumer and someone who enjoys food, I certainly will continue to be mindful of my consumption and take more care in my selection of groceries and try to, you know, more often take trips out to local farmers every now and again. Glad you liked and you'll probably gather from me and from others. We love our jobs. It, I love this industry. It's so fun. Well, thanks for reaching out. Perfect. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of the Edge of Energy. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. Thank you to all of those who have put the show together this week. Mahira Lashman, Angela Missary, Camille Hemming, and Sheena Rossiter. Look for us on your favorite podcasting app. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.